Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that we get to be here today. Thank you for your word and for seeing here a group of girls who have memorized it and have communicated it with such passion and joy. We want to receive the word today with that level of passion, joy, and delight. And I pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you want to say to us this Lord's Day from your word. We, we thank you for this text. We thank you for its um, gift to us and helping us to be formed more and more into the image of your Son. And we just want to clear away all the things in our lives that might hinder us from hearing what it is that you want to say today about the subject of godliness from this text. And so help us today, Lord, be our teacher and let your word have its intended effect on our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to take your Bible and go over to that text in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 is our passage today. And I'm sure that you, like me, have, in your lifetime, had words of wisdom that somebody gave you, a little nugget of truth that helps you to think right and then helps you to live right. Ever had someone give you that? Something that kind of just sticks with you for a long time, something that helps to kind of be a guide and a direction for your future. When when I was a, a young pastor, that's yeah, kind of a funny thing to say, but uh, when I was a young, like 30 years ago, uh, so when I was a young pastor starting out in my first church, I was involved in uh, trying to navigate the church through a difficult controversy, a challenge, and it was really hard and, and somewhat personal. And I'll never forget a, an older woman, uh, old enough to be my grandmother, came up to me in the middle of that season and she said this mark take care of your character and let god take care of your reputation that's good god help mark to take care of his character and help mark just let you take care of his reputation what was she saying She's saying this that at the end of the day what it really comes down to christian ministry and really christian living is who you are your, your character, the essence of what's going on inside of you, and what's really only in your control is your ability to be godly. You can't control what people are going to say, what they're going to do. And the calling to be a follower of Jesus means that you're passionate about becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So take care of that and let everything else go. It's really helpful. Today what we're going to talk about is that whole subject of character or godliness and how it relates to the idea of Christian ministry. We're going to talk about this word godliness that I'm sure you're familiar with at some level, but I want to expand it to be a little broader. After all, I'm sure you know that godliness is the goal of the Christian life, but it's not just the goal of Christian life. When it comes to ministry and it comes to the global advancement of God's purposes, godliness is not just the goal of the Christian life. Listen, godliness is the basis of Christian ministry. In other words, godliness isn't just something that God wants to produce in you for your future. Godliness is something that God wants to produce in you for right now. Godliness is not just the product of effective ministry. Godliness is the means of effective ministry. So doing what's right and being godly are central to what spiritual development and central to what spiritual leadership is all about. And so today I want to talk to you about this idea of godliness as a strategy for ministry. 
Godliness is a strategy for the church, and godliness also as a strategy for you. And I want you leaving here today with a, a renewed passion, a renewed zeal to say, you know what, God, I want to be godly. I want to raise godly kids. I want to be a, a godly single adult. I want to be a godly grandma or grandpa. Two weeks ago, we um, picked up our study of First Timothy chapter 4 um, with this theme that we had heard earlier in chapter 1 about false doctrine. Paul began the book of 1 Timothy with dealing with this issue of false doctrine. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we dealt with other issues. Uh, now, chapter 4, we come back to this idea of the problem of false doctrine. And for, Timothy's charge was to deal with the false teaching in this church. In fact, take your Bible, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you'll see what Paul says in verse 3. He says, as I urged you, this is 1 Timothy 1, 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. So that was Timothy's charge. He was to refute this doctrine, this false teaching. But then skip ahead to verse 5. Right after talking about the things that Timothy is supposed to teach and what he's supposed to refute, Paul then says this, the aim of our charge is love... That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what you see right there is the strategy of godliness, that Paul calls Timothy to not only teach the right things, he calls him to live the right way. And when right teaching combines with right living, that's a powerful tool in the hands of God. It's an important connection for you to see. Christianity, therefore, is the truth that leads to life. It is essentially, Christianity is about believing the good news of Jesus Christ, believing the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, having your life changed by the gospel, and then living out this gospel in terms of your daily life translated through this good news that you become more and more like Christ. I mean, say what you want, but if you don't live out the gospel, people could care less what you believe. Godliness is critical for the validation of what we claim to believe. So it's not just the goal. Godliness isn't just the target. Godliness is also the means of ministry. All of your relationships, all the spheres of influence that you operate in, whether it's your family, whether it's your relationship with other people, whether it's your relationships with people in this church, whether it's personal evangelism, your efforts in social justice or global evangelism, all of those things, at the end of the day, the, 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 the real impact comes from godliness as translated into those areas. Godliness becomes the irreducible minimum of what Christianity is supposed to be all about. In fact, when I think of people who have influenced my life, for the most part, it's been people whose lives were those who I wanted to model myself after. Oh, sure, they said great things, but it was when their lives backed up what they said, now that's somebody I wanted to follow, as opposed to just someone who said great things. Now I want to see someone who says great things and lives in a great way. So this strategy for godliness, what, what are the ingredients that are involved in this personal godliness charge? Well, there's three things that we're going to see here. First is Paul calls Timothy to feed on the Word. Secondly, to be intentional. That's in regards to some spiritual disciplines. And third, and I love this, to put his hope in God. So if if... I could just get something into your soul today, this urgent desire for you to desire godliness in a new way, it would have to translate in these three areas, regards to how you handled the word, 
your intentionality, and where you place your hope. So let's look at these three. So the first is the idea of feeding on the Word. Look at verse 6. Paul says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, put these things before the brothers. It's, this phrase means like a waiter setting the table. Uh, or a builder constructing a house. Put these things before the people. And what things were those? Well, the things we heard in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and that was, if you remember two weeks ago, about the danger of making a shipwreck of your faith. And I suggested to you that we live in a very dangerous world, dangerous teaching, dangerous um, sins and lies that we can believe. And I tried to help you understand that we can easily make a, a shipwreck of our faith Our lives can become a train wreck by the deceitful teachings of demons or deceitful teachings of our own wicked hearts, the hypocrisy of the teachers that are involved, a conscience that can be seared. All of these things, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4, is what Timothy is to lay before his people. He's to warn them continually that they live in a dangerous world and that it's possible for you to make a mess of your life. And, you know, once again, just after two Sundays ago, after that Sunday, I I met somebody right after the service. I had a couple emails come in throughout the course of the week. And it's just of people who have made a a mess of their lives, who who would say, I I have made my life a train wreck because of my bad decisions. And so when Paul says, Timothy, you're a good servant, you're a good diakonos, not just a good minister, you're a good servant of people. You serve them well. If you put these things before the people, you lay them before them and say, look at this. We, we live in a, a, a dangerous world. The beautiful thing, though, even though we live in a dangerous world, verse 6 tells us it doesn't have to be this way. It says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, back to verse 6, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So his putting these things before the people is conditioned on his understanding of the words of faith and the good doctrine. In other words, his ability to lay these things before the people was conditioned on his relationship with the Scriptures. Timothy's ability to put the right things in front of his people and his ability to be a good servant of Jesus Christ was directly related to his feeding on the Word of God. Now, the most important word in this verse is the word trained. You see it? Being trained in the words of faith. Now, the ESV, I love the the translation, the ESV translation, but in this case, I, I wish they would have used a different word. And the reason is, is that when Paul is talking about training in verse 6, it's not the same kind of training that he's talking about in verse 7, although the translators use the exact same word. And it would give you the impression that it's just the same thing all the way through, but it's not. It's, it's remarkably different. The training in verse 6 is actually um, a Greek word in trepho, and it has the idea of child-rearing, which is why all the other translations, NIV, New Revised Standard, New American Standard, New King James, King James, they render that word, instead of train, they render it as nourished. And it's also in the present, it's a present participle, which means whatever it was that was talking about um, this nourishment was something that was to continue in Timothy's life. So, so training has more of an athletic metaphor, and we'll look at this in a moment, but this relates more to child rearing or how you train up a young person. In other words, Timothy has been spiritually reared 
and nourished in such a way that it's still producing spiritual vitality in his life. Now, some of you, like me, grew up in Christian homes. Some of you, like me, went to Christian schools. I mean, as long as you can remember, you've been in the church and in Sunday school, and don't you ever get a little frustrated that when someone in their baptismal, they share like this really cool story about God saved them from, you know, all this mess and drugs, and I was like, yeah, you know, I wish I had a testimony like that. Lord saved me from drugs when I was four years old. I mean, it just doesn't work, right? You know, or just, you just wish you had kind of more of a pop testimony, a little, you know, more pizzazz to it. It kind of feels like you're, you know, like you're part of the B team. I was raised in a Christian home. Like you're apologizing for it. I went to a Christian school and I was saved at age five and my parents taught me about Jesus. Like that's like a lesser citizen, right? I, I just want you to tell you, if you're raised in a Christian home and God has put you in an environment where you're hearing the words of the Bible into your heart and life for all your life, you ought to be thankful. You ought to start your testimony. I was raised in a Christian home. Go Christians, go Christians. I went to Christian school, woo! You know, I went to Sunday school, you know? And you gotta have a different perspective on all these things instead of like, yeah, yeah, no, this is like, yes, this happened. And you gotta thank God for parents that push the Word of God into your heart. To be nourished in the words of faith. That's what Timothy, his experience here is a part of that. He was nourished in the words of faith. I have so much I could say on this, this one little story. My, um, my, my mom was involved in teaching women's Bible studies, so all throughout my growing up years, her study method was to listen to great preachers like Swindoll and Stanley, um, Adrian Rogers. We had all these tapes in our house, and when we travel all over the place, she'd be listening to these sermons so that she could get this understanding of what the text said in order to be able to speak on it to these women the following week. And I thought every kid in America grew up listening to those kind of sermons. And I just, people are like, you don't know who Chuck Swindoll is? How can you know who Chuck Swindoll is? And you know Charles Stanley? How can you know that? I just thought everyone, like Walter Cronkite, was like Chuck Swindoll in my life. It was just, it was just that reality. And I am so thankful for that. Without that, I don't, I don't know where I would be today with that level of nourishment. So how was Timothy nourished? Well, the text says that he was, he was nourished in two ways. He was trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine which he had followed. So, these two dynamics here, this, this words of faith and the good doctrine, are really one and the same. These were the fuel for his ministry. His personal godliness was the fuel for his ministry, but don't miss this. But the fuel for his godliness was this infusion of this nourishment of the word of God. And it, it began way back early in his upbringing. In fact, look at 2 Timothy 3.14. I've got it on the screen here. When Paul was thinking about Timothy's upbringing, here's what he said. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul was thinking about Timothy's upbringing, this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Timothy. He says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy's mother and his grandmother apparently put Timothy in an environment where he was acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, it's not that his mom had her own personal copy of the Hebrew Old Testament. In order for Timothy to be able to hear and understand the sacred writings, the sacred scripture, she had to bring him to synagogue. 
And the environment of Timothy's life was saturated with the beauty of the Scriptures. His home and this influence in his family created an appetite for spiritual nourishment through the Scriptures. So understand this, moms and dads, your aim is not just to teach your children the Bible. That's one aim. Your aim is actually to create within them an appetite for the Bible. So that's why when you worship together as a family in this context, realize that your, your children are learning how to worship by worshiping with you. They're, they're learning how to, to understand the Word of God by, by how you treat it and what they see going on in your life. I mean, just think of all the things that you have to teach your children. So this idea of child rearing, think, just think for a moment of all the things you've had to teach your kids. There's physical things, I mean, basic things like brushing your teeth, uh, making your bed, taking a bath. There are social things. I mean, can you believe you have to teach kids this, but you have to teach them things like say thank you, right? When people talk to you, look them in the eyes. When, you, when you're served a meal, wait till everyone else sits down before you start scarfing your food down, right? And you have to keep, how, how, how many times do you have to say these things in your home? I mean, I have to say these things a lot, and I hope you do too. So there's, there, <laughs> athletically, you have to teach your kids how to throw a ball. I mean, if, if you don't teach your, your son how to throw a ball, he'll get laughed at. You gotta teach him how to throw. He can't, you know, throw like a girl or something like that, you know? He's, he's gotta, He's got to know how to throw it. I'm going to get an email on that one. I'm sorry. Just, it just came out. you got to teach him or her how to shoot a basket so she can beat the boys. There, I'm good. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, let's, let's talk about reading. Right now... Um, Savannah is learning how to read, and one of the fun things is, you know, she's forming the words, you know, and all that, and and uh, it's just it's just fun to see not only her learn how to read, but also to have a love for reading. Not only teach her the words, but the beauty of what it means to read. So along with all this teaching, you're teaching them how to be passionate about something. You're you're, you're trying to get into their soul. D.A. Carson uh, said, I never, I'll never forget this. He said. My students will not remember everything I teach them, but they will remember everything I'm passionate about. Matt, that's a scary and yet hopeful reality. Listen, this is why we have a children's ministry. This is why after the service you need to go take a look at what's going on in our children's ministry area. Take a look at that sneak peek thing and, and see what's happening. This is why it's worth the extra effort, I hope, that your family takes at least maybe once a week or so to have some just family devotions and you know, just, just do something. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be profound, but just do something. And you're, you're pushing the Word of God into your kids' hearts. And by the way, don't be discouraged if you think it's not getting in. Because your kids aren't gonna get up from devotions and go, Dad, that was really awesome. Thanks. Appreciate, appreciate all the hard work you did in getting ready for the family devotions tonight. Thanks, Dad. I really, wow, I was really convicted. They're not gonna say that. You know what they're gonna say? Yeah, is this almost done? But, Seriously, they are. Uh, but what's going to happen is that over time, that word's going to get in their hearts, and it's going to get in their soul. It's going to get inside of them. They're, they're, it becomes part of the fabric, part of their very fiber of their being. So keep nourishing them, grandmas and grandpas. When, you're, when the grandkids come over, you got them. And when you've got them, pour the word of God into them. Even if your son or daughter isn't growing spiritual like you'd like, take those grandkids. You pour it into their lives. Take the scriptures and use it as the means by which you create appetite for the word. Listen to Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, 
who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. How could a young man keep his way? Pure, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Listen to me. The word of God is the truth that leads to life. The fuel for godly living comes from feeding on the word. And no matter where your role in the kingdom is, godliness comes from being nourished in the Word of God. Without the Word of God, you will not grow. So feed on it. Feast on it. Let it become the appetite and desire of your life. So secondly, feed on the Word. Here's the second one. Be intentional. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So, first we saw this idea of having the right appetite. Now we look at the right drive. What, what is the thing you should be leaning into, this thing you should be pursuing? Here we find the dynamic of personal discipline. You can think of personal discipline or the spiritual disciplines like a trellis as it relates to a vine. Think of godliness as a vine that grows. Think of the scriptures as the soil, the, the nutrients, the water that gives the vine its energy. And think of spiritual disciplines as the trellis. Now the trellis, you wouldn't want it to be forefront. You, trellis is there to support the vine. But the trellis is still important. The trellis is, in effect, the thing that gives the vine its structure and its room to grow. In the same way, godliness is the goal, but the intentional pursuit of spiritual disciplines, while not first in importance, is certainly important. So, in other words, personal godliness, listen, doesn't happen by accident. It requires you to be intentional. It requires you to do something on purpose. So, what are the things we're to do? First, Paul tells Timothy what he's not to do. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. In other words, there are some things that in order to say no to them, you have to say yes to something greater. So in order to say yes to what's going to come, Paul says to Timothy, just just don't have anything to do with irreverent and silly myths. You know, there's some things in life that are just better to say, you know what, I'm just not even going to go there. I'm not even going to learn about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to study that. I'm just not even going to go there. I'm just going to stick with what I know in the Word of God. He says, train yourself, secondly, for godliness. That word godliness refers to a life that is consecrated to God in specific and observable ways. It means to be made like God. It means to be made holy. And the pathway for this godlikeness or this godliness is what Paul says here in terms of training. Now here is the Greek word gymnadze, and you hear gymnasium in there. So the other word meant nourishment, like nourishing children. But this is the word that has an athletic metaphor attached to it. One that the people in the city of Ephesus would have been familiar with, one that I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Because after all, exceptional athletes have exceptional training. They dedicate enormous amounts of time, energy, and effort to developing their skills. They, they plan their lives around their training. They get up earlier than anyone else. They work incredibly hard. They persevere. Their lives, their lives are marked by incredible intentionality. No pain, no gain. It's not just their motto. It's a way of life for them. That's in, exceptional athletes 
In fact, exceptional people at anything do that. You may not do that athletically. You may have done that in your business. You may not have done that in your academic realm and some other skill that you've developed. But the thing that if you look back on your life that you're marked by is an exceptional intentionality in developing and honing that skill set. Paul is suggesting here that Timothy ought to have the same perspective of intentionality when it comes to godliness. I'm sure you know what he's talking about here. I I can remember certain seasons of my life where I had to be incredibly intentional, a a great personal sacrifice. For instance, in high school when we played when I played varsity basketball, there was a season as the as the beginning of the year began or the beginning of the season began that we would have two a days, two practices a day. We'd have to come in the morning and then practice at night. So I mean, as a as a 16 year old young man, I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I already had a bag pack with all my clothes for school for that day. Head out the door and drive to Sweetwater Donuts and got two double chocolate donuts, a glass of orange juice, got buzzed and was ready to go. I was sugar loaded and got on that court at 5.30, 6 o'clock, practiced till 8, took a shower, went to school all day, did it again at 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock, got home, got homework done, went to bed and did it all over again for three weeks. I mean, an amazing amount of intentionality built in to everything that was involved. And whether it's academics or business or politics or the arts, intentionality is central. I mean, it's, it's a part of what it means to be exceptional. And, and godliness takes intentional effort as well. Now, in what areas, what, what kind of intentionality am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about intentionality as it relates to the spiritual disciplines. You know what I mean by those? An example of spiritual disciplines would be um, Bible reading, memorization, prayer, fasting, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, silence, uh, journaling, giving, acts of mercy. These are the means by which godliness is facilitated. They don't represent the sum total of godliness, but they are the means by which godliness is facilitated. Without these disciplines and without the intentional pursuit of these disciplines, candidly, godliness will not happen. I mean, it's really, really simple, and it goes like this. Without intentionally putting yourself in a position to receive God's grace through the spiritual disciplines, you will never be godly. You won't. Let Let me give you an analogy. The spiritual disciplines could be compared to a river with a a fast current. And that current, think of the current as God's grace. And what happens with the spiritual disciplines is they're like, like jumping on points or jumping in points into the stream. So prayer throws you into the stream of God's grace that you're able to then be moved along by the Spirit and to receive and to experience the moving of God in your heart and life. Same thing with Bible reading. By bringing myself to the Scriptures and spending time in the Word, I'm throwing myself into the stream of God's grace to be carried along by the Spirit. And that's what the spiritual disciplines do. They're not the sum total, and they're not the power in and of themselves, but rather they are the on-ramps, they're the diving boards, they're the entry points points into the stream of God's grace. And here's the problem, is that there are so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus who are simply standing on the shore and they don't jump into the stream of God's grace. And they wonder why after a while they've been standing on the shore for days, weeks, months, or even years. They haven't received the beauty of God's grace through these spiritual disciplines. And after a while, that stream starts to look unattractive. And they start to think about other streams. And it isn't long until they're starting to wander over to other streams. 
And it is the means of these spiritual disciplines that bring us into in an environment where we are able to receive from God and His Spirit. So you open your Bible, you pray, you give, you've come to church today. Why? In order to receive. You've done a great thing. You've come here. Some of you, I'll be an hour later than what you normally come, but you're here and you're receiving the Spirit of God through His Word and through corporate worship. And you need it. We all need it. So the spiritual disciplines are an important part of the fabric of growing us into Christ-likeness. Look at verse 8. Paul explains the purpose. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So intentionality for intentionality never really works or lasts. What Paul identifies here is the reason why godliness is a great choice. So why should you jump into the stream? Why should you embrace the spiritual disciplines? Reason? Well, because while bodily training has some value, and Paul wisely acknowledges, look, there's there's value in physical training, but it's not like training in godliness, Why? Because training in godliness is valuable in every way. What does it mean? It means that godliness affects everything that you do. Godliness is all-encompassing in its effects. One commentary put it this way, it is valuable in the home, the church, the marketplace. It is valuable in both times of trouble and times of prosperity. Godliness helps a person deal with enemies as well as friends. Godliness is never superfluous. It guides the believer in every situation. So godliness is all expansive. And so the question would be, why wouldn't you want to be godly? Why wouldn't you want to throw yourself in the stream of God's grace? Why wouldn't you want to feast on His Word? Why wouldn't you want to know Him and the power of His resurrection? It's so valuable. And yet, also, it's not only valuable now, but it also has eternal implications. Look at the latter part of verse 8. It also holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So godliness, check this out, has a double blessing. It's not only a blessing right now, but also is a blessing in the future. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we run this race in order to receive an imperishable wreath or crown. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that godliness has a broad impact and has a long longevity. It's far more valuable. In fact, so much so that Paul says in verse 9, he makes it a proverb, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, why in the world would you want to live for anything else besides godliness? But isn't it true that we need to hear that? Because if we just let our hearts or the world or the flesh or the devil tell us, we could be pretty easily convinced that godliness is not really the best. So let me just ask you a few questions. Just think of this with me. So you're intentional about something. All of us are intentional about some things. I mean, even if it's sleep or relaxing. I mean, you're you're intentional about it. Here's the question, though. What, What are you passionate about? If I were to ask your kids or your grandkids or your spouse or... Your friends. So, so what are you passionate about? What would they say? Would, would any element of godliness even be on the radar? Or would it be, oh, oh, oh yeah, 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 that, he's passionate about that too. But that wasn't the first thing that you thought of. Or even maybe the first two or three things. What do you spend time thinking about, planning, dreaming, and doing? I would imagine there's some of you who spend far more time planning what TV shows you're going to watch this week than you do how you're going to spend time in the Word. 
You, you probably know, some of you, exactly who's playing a basketball game this afternoon. You know who's ranked in what order, and you've got it already TiVo'd or whatever is the new thing, to, to, to DVR to record it so it's all ready to go. And yet when it comes to your time in the Word or time with the Lord, it's, well, if I get up and I've got energy. You don't think that has a negative impact on your soul over the long haul, let alone the people around you, let alone your children? So godliness begins by having a relationship with Jesus, by understanding you're a sinner and knowing that you need a Savior. And before you even spend time in the Word, that decision, that commitment needs to be settled first. Are you giving adequate time to the disciplines of grace? I mean, I don't want to guilt you into this, but I just want to suggest to you, as I will at the end, that you know, you're, you're not living the full life that God would want you if the disciplines of grace aren't a part of your life and your priorities. Or maybe there's a few of the spiritual disciplines that I listed before that need to be a new priority for you. Calvin called godliness the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. Oh, it is. The beginning, the middle, and the end. It involves feeding on the Word, and it also involves intentionality. There's one more. And I love this. It ends with this focus on what it means to hope in God. Look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. So Paul acknowledges here what we know, and that, look, we live in a hard world with the flesh, the world, and the devil drawing us, always tempting us to go a different direction. So this 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 thing towards godliness is a toil and a striving thing. We've got to push to go the other direction. And it's not just that you make the effort, but instead put yourself into the stream of God's grace. But this, this discipline, this hard thing that we're trying to do, needs to have direction to it. There's a great book by Donald Whitney called The Disciplines of Grace, or Spiritual Disciplines, I think, is what it's called. And he says this, that discipline without direction leads to drudgery. That's so true. Discipline without direction leads to drudgery. And what Paul does is he gives direction to the discipline. So... He says, why, why are you pursuing godliness? For to this end we toil and strive. Here's why. Because we have set our hope on the living God. So while the pursuit of godliness is not easy, Paul lays out a grand and global vision of what God is doing, and in that matter, what he invites you and me to participate in. He identifies that the reason for godliness is because our hope is in the living God. What does that mean? Well, think back with me, for those of you who've received Christ, as to how you came to Christ in the first place. And if those of you who haven't received Christ, just hear what happens. And my prayer would be this happen, was, might happen to you today. When, when you came to faith in Christ, you realized that your way of living your life on your own effort, trying to self-atone, do enough good deeds to earn God's favor, was a pointless, silly pursuit. It was going nowhere. That, in effect, you had made a mess of your life. And suddenly... The message of the gospel, the good news comes, that Jesus died for your sins and that God would take Christ's death and he would apply it to your life if you would merely repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior. And in in a beautiful moment, you saw that. Your eyes were suddenly open to the reality of this beautiful thing and believing that God would do that based upon his promise in the word you placed your hope in him and you prayed something like God I know I'm a sinner I want Jesus's death to count for me Jesus come in and be my savior and lord and in that prayer what did you do in that prayer you hoped in God 
at a deathbed of a person who's received Christ. What are they in that moment? What are they clinging to? They are clinging to the hope of the promise of God. So conversion at its very basic element is hoping in God. So the Christian life is essentially a life that begins what it means to hope in God, and continues all the way through. So Paul says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope, set our hope, our hope set on the living God. So Paul invites us to realize that this is the purpose for why we are on the earth right now. We are here to fulfill Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how does that work out? It works out. When your family looks like a little touch of heaven, when your life and your actions look like a little taste of heaven, when your small group, when your ABF class, when your circle of friends, when, when this body of believers collectively look like it's heaven on earth, when there is this God birth godliness, it's a beautiful thing. And God's aim, says Paul, is to set our hope on the living God, means that God has us as a part of this overall plan to take that godliness to a global scale. God wants to advance His purpose in a global perspective. With that lens, look at the last part of the verse. Who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is not advocating some sort of universalism, like God saves everyone. Rather, what it means is that Christ's death was sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who believe. So the floodgates of the gospel have now been opened to all peoples and all nations, but the saving death of Jesus is only applied to those who actually believe in him, who place their hope in him. So hoping in God is where Christianity begins, and, listen to me, hoping in God is where godliness comes from. How so? Well... Whenever you decide, look, rather than sleeping in, I'm going to get up and spend time with the Word, you're placing hope in God that I'm going to come, I'm going to open the Scriptures, I'm going to read, and I'm going to meet with you. When you spend time in prayer, you're saying, God, I, I can't live my life on my own. I, I, I have this self-sufficiency that's a part of the fabric of who I am, and I need your help, and so I'm going to hope in you. Giving, Lord, I'm going to believe that by giving my money away, that it not only honors you, but you know everything that I need, and more than the stuff that I need, I need you. Fasting, Lord, I, I'm, I, I'm going to deprive myself of something that I normally do, like food, or um, some other thing, like television, or I'm going to give something up for this particular season of time, because I I, I want to remind my soul that I need you more than I need these things. What are you doing in that? You are hoping in what God promises you beyond what these other things in the world promise you. Godliness means that while most of the people you know are putting their hope in pleasure and pride and prestige, you are putting your hope in God. Such that, listen to me, when a temptation comes across your path, if you hope in God, you'll see that temptation differently. Why? Because the temptation says you could be happy if you do this or this or this or this. And in contrast to that, the Bible says, no, 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 put your hope in God. Don't do this. And so you say, you know what? I'm going to go this direction because I believe that God knows best and that this thing is just a silly, sick trap. I'm going to hope in God. I'm going to believe Him that purity and righteousness and godliness are the things that really matter. The hymn writer Rhea Miller in 1922 put it this way, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. 
I'd rather be faithful to His dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to His holy name than to be the King of a vast domain and to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. What is that? That is hope in God. Godliness, at the end of the day, is hope in God. Some of you today, my guess is you need to pray, God, would you help me today to hope in you again? Would you create within me this appetite to be able to know you and to love you and to pursue godliness in a new and fresh way? So feeding on the Word, secondly, being intentional and hoping in God. These are the core ingredients for training yourself in godliness. At the end of the day, who you are, your godliness before God is what really matters, which is why that dear friend... That old woman was right. Take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. Godliness is not just the way that people who are in ministry should live. It is the way that all followers of Jesus should live. In fact, let me just say this. I would tell you that if you live for anything else besides godliness, seriously, I feel really sad for you. You know why? Because the reality is you know and I know that there's something more to life than what you're running after. And my question would be this. Don't you want to live for something more? Aren't you tired of the cheap thrills, the momentary pleasures, the shallow experience, and then the boatload of guilt that comes when you look yourself in your mirror and you're like, I can't stand it that I'm like this. Aren't you tired of that? Somewhere in your soul, you know that there has to be more to life than what you're presently living for. And the Bible says there is. And you know what that is? That's a personal relationship with Christ and then following Him and pursuing godliness with all you've got. The Bible calls us to see and live and receive the truth that leads to life. Godliness and training for it is not something for a special class of people. Godliness, being more and more like God, is what it means not just to be a Christian. It's what it means to really be alive. So you train yourself, not because you have to. You train yourself for godliness because there is no better way to live. You train yourself because it's the best way. Father, I pray that you would impress upon us the need today to take this calling from your word for personal godliness very seriously. And I pray that incrementally all of us would just, even now, be able to say, Lord, I I just... I just want to be godly. And as it relates to our individual walks today, that you'd help us to make one additional decision empowered by your Spirit and what it means to follow you. 
Lord, I pray today for some who may be here and never have received Christ as their Savior. They're following all sorts of wrong paths. They know it, you know it, and probably a bunch of people around them know it. And I pray the day they would see the reality of the foolish way that they're choosing, would feel conviction over their sin, and run to Christ as their only hope. And then for all the people who know and love this truth of called the gospel, we pray that the godliness that's supposed to go along with the gospel would match it. Because you are doing amazing things that you invite us to be a part of. We want to hope in you. So restore our hope and get us up early. Help us to know how to jump into that stream. Help us in some cases to come back to a white-hot relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if there's some of you today who need to pray with someone, there'll be some folks up here at the front, something going on in your life or something related to the sermon today, these folks are here to serve you, okay? All right, God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.